Welcome to the Planning to Teach and Retire Rich podcast. I'm Scott Downhower, and I'm joined by Dina and Tony Asola. Hi there. Hey, there's Dina. Tony, you're around? I'm right here. <laughs> All right. Great to, great to be with you guys today. So today I'm really excited about this podcast. Not that I'm not normally excited about our podcasts, but uh, I'm excited about today's guest for several reasons. First, he lives in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Uh, I grew up in Portland. I don't live there anymore, but I still consider it home. I religiously watch Portlandia and get back there as, as often as I can. In fact, I'm traveling up there next week. So um, this makes this podcast doubly exciting. The second reason that I'm excited about the podcast is uh, our guest is joining us to talk about ESG investing or sustainability investing. Um, we will explain or have our guests explain those terms as we get along here. Um, so this is a topic that's that's near to many of our listeners. So today's guest started in the industry very much like I did, doing it the wrong way. That's from his bio, and I will let him explain that. But after some tough years and a major financial crisis, he found his way to running money for a Portland wealth manager and eventually came to work for Ritholtz Wealth Management, where both Tony and Dino work. His specialty has been in the area of developing sustainable portfolios, and we are pleased to welcome the creator of the Portland portfolio, Joey Fishman. Joey, welcome to the Planning to Teach and Retire Rich podcast. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. So before we get to why you're here, I just have to ask you a few uh, Portland questions since, <laughs> since that's uh, where I grew up. Uh, and, and we chatted a little bit before the podcast. But have you always lived in Portland? I have not, actually. Um, <clears throat> originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, my wife and I moved here about 11 years ago. We met in San Francisco and uh, loving it ever since we moved up. We were what? part of the, uh, the, the California refugees where trying to escape the, the high housing costs, you know, 10 years ago during the, the housing boom. And so that's what uh, facilitated the move up north. Uh, that was actually my next question. And, <laughs> and, and now that uh, housing boom is coming to Portland, uh, it's, it, it's, it's not cheap to live in Portland anymore. It is not cheap. That's right. That's right. Uh, the reverberations, I think, from the financial crisis are still being felt in Portland. And, um, you know, if you walk out on the streets, it's, it's, it, it's pretty evident. It's pretty evident. Hopefully, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the hope is that as time goes on, they'll, they'll build more affordable housing and, and, and eventually, you know, solve that issue. But uh, it, it's definitely uh, at the forefront, I think, of any time that you come to Portland, you, you see it, it's pretty evident. Are you tired of hearing about voodoo donuts yet? <laughs> <laughs> I can't for the life of me understand why people would stand in line for an hour and a half. Rain, sleet, snow, doesn't matter. It's, 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 it's mind boggling. <laughs> have you ever eaten a voodoo donut? I have eaten voodoo donuts. As a matter of fact, anytime that the Ritholtz crew comes out here, that is one of the first places that we stop. <laughs> but what the hell is a voodoo donut? <laughs> I guess I guess Tony and Dina have not been out there. No, Tony and Dina have not, no. But I'm no. very excited for them to come. Do you want to explain what a voodoo donut is? Sure. A voodoo donut is it's a uh, it's a chain that's been around here for for quite some time, and they tend to have explicitly or sorry explicit donuts that are probably not safe for work. 
So um, <laughs> there's various forms of <laughs> of copulation, maybe that's the way to say it. The donuts are in the oh shape of. And so the idea is, you know, it's kitschy. It's 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 it, it's a whole oh. cottage industry, evidently. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that they explains do have they do have bacon wrapped maple bars as well. They do. That's right. That's right. I believe uh, that's Batnick's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'll just a couple, just a couple more. Um, have you ever had an elephant ear? Do you know what an elephant ear is? I do know what an elephant ear is, and I have had an elephant ear. They are amazing. I I love elephant ears. It's like if I can get down to the Portland Saturday Market, I will do that yep. just for an elephant ear. Yep. 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 And, and also out in Seaside, Oregon. I, I grew up going to Seaside for vac- vacation. That's That was the extent of what we could afford back then. But they had elephant ears there, and they were amazing. Well, Seaside's beautiful. Yeah. Well, it was a little different growing up. But Seaside, Cannon Beach, Lincoln, Newport, great places. Love them all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling very sheltered. What is an elephant ear? Okay. I was, you know, I was waiting for that prompt. Um, so thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> It's literally, I mean, it's it's a piece of dough. It's not a funnel cake, but you take like a big piece of dough. It's it's, it's not quite the size of an elephant's ear, but maybe a baby elephant's ear. And you drop it in, in, in oil and fry it up. And then, and then you take a whole bunch of butter. You just drench it in butter. <laughs> oh, okay. And then it gets better. What do you do? Then, stuff a Twinkie in it? <laughs> no, you basically just drop it in a thing of cinnamon and sugar. Oh my god! And it's just cinnamon sugar gets soaked up into the butter, and it's all warm and soft. And then you just eat it from there, and it's it's heaven. It's unbelievably good. It's you know it's part of the obesity epidemic, but it's still amazing. <laughs> you just have it like once a year. It's okay, and then you can get various toppings for it as well but i just like the the cinnamon and sugar version okay very nice so so far we've talked about donuts and uh other pastries let's move on to our real topic here that uh so joey you're you're sort of a uh, an expert on sustainable investing and and actually i'm not quite sure here so so sustainable or esg investing Give us a primer on the different what they are and maybe the differences and, and what your focus is. Terrific. Yeah. So that that's actually a good starting point because there there, you know, a lot of good work has been done over the past, you know, number of years, but one area that still remains is having uh, more clarity in terms of definitions and standards. And so by simply asking the question, you know, is ESG sustainable investing? Is it socially responsible? Where does it fall on the spectrum? And, you know, it's important to recognize up front that ESG is just one part of investing for with a sustainability mandate. And if we think about sustainability, um, that can encompass so many different sets of criteria and ESG is just one of those along the spectrum. Um, how we do it, or at least how we think about ESG investing, is from the vantage point of a wealth manager. So there's an end goal in mind, and that's going to differ from, say, an endowment or an institution where they're set up in perpetuity, and they may have a, a different mandate than what would be um, you know, uh, appropriate for the wealth management space. So... <clears throat> 
the way in which most ESG uh, funds are set up is they're, they, they tend not to be the primary objective, but the secondary objective above and beyond traditional financial analysis. And if you can implement it that way, you're less likely to suffer from per- potential performance. So, um, you know, the more that you walk out that curve or the more that you walk out that spectrum and you start getting into like thematic and impact investing, the likelihood of you achieving market level returns starts to drop pretty significantly. So it's important to understand the differences and what exactly you're investing in. And I, I will say that I have yet to see, you know, any 403B or any 401k or even, you know, at the traditional brokerage channel, I, I have yet to see any impact investing offering. So um, that's probably a good thing for right now. Can you give us an example of an impact offering? Sure. Sure. So an impact offering may, you know, uh, it, it tends to be a, a private deal that, um, you know, maybe they're looking to, to solve home, you know, homeless issues or uh, affordable housing. And so um, finance as a medium has yet to solve those challenges in a convincing way that would make, you know, the, the, the broader investment investor class want to adopt those policies. So, you know, the impact space is mostly relegated to people that have, um, you know, social purpose or a higher purpose that supersedes the return. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So generally, there are, there are people who want, who are investing their own money, they want to see growth on it. Um, but they want to exclude, they want to also do it in what they maybe see as maybe an environmental uh, way, uh, you know, climate change, things like that. But they don't want to really impact their returns. And then there's another group of people who are, they want to use their money for very specific causes or, or, or good causes they see and return on their money is not as important as perhaps the return that they, uh, they might get, uh, personally is, is am I, is that that's, kind of right? Yeah, that's spot on. So, um, you know, you can get involved in an impact real estate deal and <clears throat> you know, the, the, the returns associated with that is probably going to be more closely, you know, of that, of a bond. So let's just call it the 10 year, two and a half percent versus, you know, uh, a traditional REIT that's probably kicking off, let's just say, 7.5% per year, you know, in addition to uh, dividends and interest. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let me, okay, so for example, um, I have some religious clients actually um, in the Pacific Northwest, and they yeah. put some of their money into uh, a a fund that gives them a fixed rate of return, but it's invested in basically building churches or refinancing churches, things like that. Um, And there is significant, the risk in in that portfolio is actually quite high because the risk of default is is not low. Um, And these, these, these churches might not be able to get traditional bank financing, but the interest rate they get is it really, it is not enough to compensate them for that extra risk. So that might be an example of what you're talking about? That, that's a terrific example. That, that would fall right under the impact investing, yes. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so what, what do, okay, so then what is sustainable investing? Right. So sustainable investing, again, you know, the definitions aren't so clear, but the way in which we think about it is you're doing the traditional financial analysis first. And then on top of that, you're then scoring companies or the individual asset class based upon how far out or what impact 
that that investment is going to have on in terms of making the not only the firm sustainable, um, but the overall ecosystem for which that that firm operates within its community sustainable over the long term. And there's a number of ways to look at it, or a number of different ways to score, but it's all going to depend specifically not just on that individual sector, but it's also going to depend on that individual company in which it operates. And so so many of the scoring systems that are out there today, you know, there's a number of companies that are dominating for supremacy to, to have, you know, to become the standard bearer that says, you know, as an industry or as a sector, you need to fall under this criteria to qualify for good ESG, you know, sets of criteria. And the more defined that that's going to become, the better handle we'll have on all of these questions. Okay. It's, it's, uh, so sustainable investing is not so easy. <laughs> it's not. It, no, it's it, not. I mean, you know, I, I don't, my personal opinion is that, you know, religious screens, you know, don't really fall under sustainable investing because, sure. um, you know, that, that's more thematic or impact. Um, you know, uh, firms that have a, a good environmental stewardship program and a great governance program, you know, that absolutely falls under the ESG criteria where essentially you're, you're tapping at the margins to sculpt the portfolio in such a way that you're incentivizing companies to do better across those scoring mechanisms while at the same time avoiding the worst offenders. And so when you play in that space, there's oodles amounts of data that you can then harvest to help, you know, have an evidence-based approach to what you're doing. Now, as you move out more like into the thematic and the impact side of the equation, you don't have as much data to help support that investment thesis. And in some ways, again, I don't mean to denigrate, but in some ways you're kind of throwing jello at the wall to see if you can eventually have that impact that you're looking for. Huh. So this is one of the things that um, we sort of struggled with, uh, with, a, with a large corporate client of mine looking into creating basically sustainable portfolios. And we interviewed many companies that offer sustainable portfolios. And this idea of scoring came up. And I'm sort of new to this space. I'm learning a lot about it. Um, and it's, it's a, <laughs> there's a lot to know. There's a lot of terminology that I don't understand that I haven't really been exposed to. But what I'm what I'm learning is these score. You know, every company basically gets a score based on all these different measures, um, and then then certain companies are excluded for certain reasons. But like with sustainability, you actually have like in some cases you have a a screen where you could technically have an oil company in a portfolio in a sustainable portfolio because of the way they construct. Generally, how what do you look for when you're in, in the companies that you're looking to use, the investment companies that you're looking to use to build these portfolios? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a really good question. Um, the, so we, we found DFA to be one of the, the more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, pragmatic approaches to ESG investing. And, and, and here's why. So the work that they do, they work with Sustainalytics. And Sustainalytics... Um, tends to be more quantitatively focused than, say, um, SASB or many of the other firms that are out there. And why that's significant is because every quarter, they're able to actually produce a report to show the carbon intensity per million dollars of revenue or per million dollars of sale and match that up against not only the index, but the portfolio that you're invested in. 
And so because there's a clear set of you know, data from which to harvest and which to measure that success, it, it, it becomes pretty, uh, pretty seamless. So, um, you know, we found Dimensional to be one of the leaders in that space because they're so data-driven. Now, on the religious side, it gets a lot more difficult to ascertain whether or not those policies are additive or subtractive to returns. And so I think that a lot of the confusion in the space um, <clears throat> probably stems from, you know, that lack of, of clarity of whether or not, you know, those specific policies are going to be helpful. And so <clears throat> looking at a more general as or, you know, a more general view, you know, at the end of the day, the E and the G are the most robust, they're most durable. So, right, um, you know, good environmental stewardship has a number of benefits. Um, not only does it lower your input cost, um, uh, it, it generally produces more brand loyalty, um, your, your employees tend to be more engaged and, um, you know, more sticky. And then on the governance side, um, you know, women on boards is a, a tremendous advantage that is becoming more and more, um, you know, evident as the data continues to come out. Um, you know, caps on CEO uh, pay plans and, and making sure that, um, you know, ethics are, are being practiced in such a way that's in line with, you know, the overall sustainability of the company to make sure they can survive in its ecosystem from which it operates. And so <clears throat> social, on the other hand, which somehow, you know, toils in the religious aspect, it becomes a lot harder to quantify, you know, the, the, the net effect of those policies. And so if you look at some of the research pieces that have been put out lately, where they're trying to quantify you know, the, the, the net benefits of the E, the S, and the G, you know, the S tends to fall back a little bit, in some cases a lot, where we're not yet at a place where we can, you know, harvest that data and quantify the benefits of doing, you know, a, a good social screen. You follow me so far? Yeah, and that, <clears throat> this has actually been an area where in some of the defined contribution programs that I consult with, They've, for years, act, they've been looking for a, they've, they've talked about having, oh, we have social, we have a social fund. And uh, so we have one social offering. And the problem that we've had is, you know, all the different social funds have different, um, a different objective. Right, right. And those objectives, in some cases, are religious, in some cases, they're, you know, they're, they're something else entirely. And social is something that is personal to everybody. And it's impossible to have a social fund in a, in a lineup that appeals to everybody. And so we started moving away from these socially responsible funds and started focusing more on sustainability funds because it's, it seems clearly more definable as you exactly. Know. And I know DFA offers both social and sustainability funds, um, and, and there's there's clearly a difference between those two. So I, I think it's uh, it, it's interesting to hear you say that because that's that's the exact thing. The S in uh, ESG is exactly what we've been struggling with uh, for years in these lineups. Let, let me let me throw one more you know. Uh, let me throw one more thing at you, is that, you know, it, it's also going to differ based upon the individual asset class. So, <clears throat> you know, where, where maybe equities aren't the best, 
you know, vehicle for social issues, municipal bonds are. And I guess one can make the argument, but by design, you know, municipal bonds are socially responsible investing in that, you know, for the most part, you know, anytime that you know, a municipality issues a bond, it's for the betterment of, of its citizens. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not only dependent upon the individual fund in terms of how they score and define, you know, what it means to be ESG, but it's also going to differ by the individual asset class. Got it. So um, I know we, we, we try to keep our podcast to about 30 minutes and I, I uh, generally dominate. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, Tony and Dina. Uh, I just find Joey so interesting to talk to, but I want to make sure you guys have an opportunity to ask some questions as well. <laughs> uh, so I want to hand over to Tony and Dina to, uh, to get their thoughts um, on sustainability investing in the Portland portfolio. Yeah, well, I think it's it's I, I find this stuff kind of interesting, but like many people out there, it's also confusing because it seems like there's a lot of things that are more subjective than than objective. So right. so that's that's an issue, I think, you know. And I'm not saying that can't be cleared up down the road, but obviously there's there's impediments here or else there'd be a lot more people, you know, putting money into something like this. So just just to play you know, devil's advocate, not, not, I'm, I'm not a personal believer in this, but I'm, but there are a lot of people out there that could simply say, you know what, why don't I just invest my money and like tilt it towards, you know, small, small cap and value companies and profitable companies of any type of nature and make as much money as possible. And then simply, you know, give money to my church or give money to a charity or, or fund it that way. You know, what would be your, response to to that argument yeah i mean it's absolutely a valid argument 100 percent. and i think that in order for the esg movement to now take it to the next level Mm -hmm. the only way that that's going to happen is if they become a lot more concrete in terms of definitions and standards so that would be the first thing the second thing is that you know I think that the more defined that these policies become, the more likely it's going to be incorporated into all traditional financial analysis. Mm. And so it's most likely become a generic feature going forward. If nothing else, then um, the, 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 the prospects of climate change may be a significant impediment to a company's bottom line. Sure. And so to, to alleviate you know, that analysis from, from your work is, 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 you know, is, is leaving yourself in a big hole. Mm. So, um, you know, I think that there's, there's a couple, there, there's a couple things that are involved here and, and you're right. I mean, <clears throat> only a certain type of person, um, would find this most attractive. And the reality is, is that when trouble strikes for people that are investing their values, you know, that person's going to be more sticky, Sure. Only because, you know, they're looking out for the long term. They're, they're putting their money where, where their mouth is. And at the same time, um, you know, provided that they don't walk too far out that curve in terms of, you know, impact spectrum, um, then, you know, at the very least, they're most likely to deliver market level returns. Okay. So um, it's, it's not so much of a trade off as it once was. And... Um, as things become better defined and, and standards are, you know, adopted across all reporting mechanisms, I think that a lot of these concerns are going to be wiped away. But, you know, it, it's going to be incumbent upon the folks that are leading the charge here to, to really do a good job and be very clear in terms of what each mechanism means or each policy means and how to score it appropriately. 
Mm. And do you think like maybe down the road, like we have all these different, you know, types of factor investing. I mean, I've, I've read, you know, in many places where, you know, for instance, if a comp, the more diverse a company is, if they have more women, they have more minorities, not only, you know, is it probably a better place to work, but they tend to perform better because obviously you're getting inputs from all kinds of different sources, which could lead to better outcomes on things. I mean, do you think they're going to come out with like, like say a, a factor-based fund that would just focus on companies that have, you know, diverse corporate boards and, and, and diverse yes. management basis and stuff like that. Is that something you see in the, in the future or? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there, there's an existing fund out there right now. It's uh, she, it's an ETF and it's a, a gender diversity based ETF. And, and, you know, the, the, the data and the assumptions that they base that model on are totally verified or, or yeah. you know, are, okay. are totally bona fide. You know, having diversity of cognitive thought, yeah, I, you know, I agree. Boards is, is absolutely a, a terrific, um, you know, step forward. It's mind boggling that we're just learning this now. <laughs> Yeah, it just seems it just seems like common sense too. Like, but I mean, but again, in the end, people want to make money, and unfortunately, you know, if if they're not going to make as much money with with this type of investing as they would with just say investing in the S and P, they're probably not going to do it. So I think you know that's what really has to come out there and say, you know what, not only maybe will you match the market returns, but maybe even do do slightly better because we we show the evidence and hopefully you know more things like that will come out and that you know people follow returns right and money money will go to where you can make more money so just to be kind of callous about it you know people don't have to care about these things but if they know that they can make more money doing it they're probably they're probably going to do it right that that's true and you know the the thing to be really skeptical of, or at least this is what I say to myself, that every time that I read one of these studies that show, you know, the potential for ESG performance is that, you know, our data series only really goes back about 10 years. Mm, sure. So and, it's, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and within that 10 year time period, maybe only five had more refined definitions and standards. And not only that, but so much of the outperformance that some of these funds are, 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 are saying because, you know, it's because of these ESG screens, most likely, if we're really being honest with ourselves, it's because growth has been outperforming everything else over the last 10 sure. years. Sure. So, you know, you just have to be really careful yeah. in terms of how you interpret these results. But, you know, I, I, I can tell you how it works in my household. And, and so my wife's, an, you know, she runs an environmental foundation. It's extremely important to her, and you know every time we get a pullback in the market, there's there's no fear on this woman's face because we know that every time that we're allocating more and more, it's just helping make the world a better place. And so for her, right. you know, it, it just makes it that much easier for her to stick to the plan, and I love it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and there's warts and all. Right. But at the end of the day, I think the ends justify the means. Right. Well, in the end, at least it's it's refreshing that you're honest about it because, again, there's I think there's like charlatans and everything and people could go out there and really misinform people about this issue, which which would do more harm than good. So I think you're giving us a really good, fair overview of, of, of what's going on. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this this part of the industry is going to succeed no matter what. 
Um, I, I, again, I, I think we're, we're going to that place where it's going to be included in traditional financial analysis. So it's going to be incumbent upon a lot of these funds to help, you know, establish what their value proposition is. Mm-hmm. And, and you're seeing, you know, across the board fee cuts um, with a lot of these ESG funds only because they're starting to see the writing on the wall. So um, bottom line, it, it's great for humanity. I, I think that in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, finance can, can help solve a lot of these major issues, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, <clears throat> our, our Congress has totally abdicated their responsibility in solving. So um, I, 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 over time, I think it's going to be a, uh, a larger and more important part of, of analysis, but it, it remains to be seen whether it be its own, like, you know, carved out subsector industry. What industries are you most encouraged by that you see them taking a more proactive uh, stance? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the energy space is going to surprise us. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, the fossil fuel intensive company of today, my sense is in 15 years down the road, they're going to be the renewable energy company of tomorrow. Um, you know, is, is, as bad of actors as they have been, with, um, you know, suppressing information that, you know, is contradictory to, you know, their, their, their stance on climate change. It's been absolutely atrocious. But at the same time, um, you have to find a way to see the longer end game. And, and, I, and I don't yet believe that you can count out fossil fuel companies right now. I think that over time, they're going to find a way to transition themselves to, to being more uh, low carbon intensive, fine, you know, ways of, of generating energy for, for the nation. They, see, they, sort of, they see the writing on the wall. They know that at, at some point. They do, yeah. yeah and, and it's yeah. getting cheaper to produce uh, energy um, with solar or wind or some of the new technologies than it is to pull it out of the ground. Um, and I, they've got the resources to invest in uh, I would assume into that research uh, that you know maybe other new companies don't. So it, it seems like a natural, natural thing for them to do. Absolutely, and I mean if you look overseas, you know our international counterparts are so far ahead of the game. So you know investing in a fossil-free fuel, um, uh, you know ESG fund with an international mandate, it, it's so much easier. Uh, and you suffer from, you don't suffer from diversification issues because, you know, uh, the, the opportunity set is so wide and so vast. And I think eventually we'll, we'll see that begin to happen here in the United States as well. Are there any, any industries that you think really are just really slow on the uptake and aren't really wanting to get on board? Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> Again, going back to the fossil fuel space, yeah, I mean, you know, Chevron is probably one of the worst scoring in, uh, uh, energy companies there are. And um, I don't want to say they're beyond reproach, but they get screened out of, of, of most, you know, environmental screens because of the way in which they, you know, they approach the issue where they're just unwilling to bend or take any steps concretely that help solve the issue. So, um, you know, it's... They, they're becoming fewer and far between. So, you know, right now, 85% of S&P 500 companies are, have adopted these policies. Of the 15% that haven't, you know, eventually they'll be either excluded from 
uh, investing or they'll get their act together and find a way to at least, you know, adopt some semblance of these policies so they can put themselves on the right track to, to long-term sustainability. This is, uh, this is fascinating. I have, um, Mm, probably a more nuanced question that I probably shouldn't ask, but uh, I just kind of want to know. I, I got to ask it anyways, and just only because it might take a little while. But, um, you know, so we saw today or, or yesterday, I think, Citigroup came out and said um, they, they put some restrictions on who can, who can use their services, certain services, um, if, they, if they sell guns. Um, We've seen companies like Dick's Sporting Goods uh, do the same thing, Kroger with, with Fred Meyer. Um, and, and not just guns, but uh, are there other issues that might eventually move their way into this space? So, for example, sugar. Um, like nobody really thinks of sugar as, I mean, a lot of people think of sugar, but you know, sugar, I, I mean, we just spent the beginning of this podcast focusing purely on sugar. <laughs> on sugar yeah. And, right. and, you know, arguably uh, the, the industry that produces sugar, you know, the Coca-Colas and, and uh, just every industry that's out there, every fast food, whatever, there's just so much sugar in everything that we eat and obesity is a major issue. Um, so like these, and, and that affects everything else that we do because it affects healthcare, sure. which affects sustainability. So how do, how do these sort of, I don't want to say side issues, but these like not necessarily climate change type issues, how do those eventually make their way into these types of, or maybe they already are into these types of portfolios? So, you know, I guess tobacco is probably the, the best reference to, to bring up and, and, and to answer this question. Um, you know, many years ago, these funds realized that, um, you know, the, 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 the long-term health care effects and the economic consequences of smoking are pretty significant. And because of that, these funds fully divested themselves, along with, you know, all the other, you know, nastiness that the tobacco companies did uh, for years and lying to the public. Obviously, that's, you know, was, was, was part of the equation. But it, it, it's not it's not unreasonable to see that potentially happening with sugar. Now, <clears throat> the thing that I would caution you on is that not everything can be solved with finance. And, <laughs> you know, part of our original discussion was, you know, so the, you know, the West coast itself is, is, is suffering pretty much from a housing crisis. And for, for a lot of years, you know, cities, governments, people, citizens were looking to corporations to help solve that. And it's really difficult to solve an issue like that using finance as a medium because there's so many different complexities to help solve that issue. Hmm. And I guess, you know, the, 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 the sum of this comment here is that, you know, not everything can be solved using, you know, finance. And I, I think, over time, we're going to get better at identifying what can be solved and what can't be. And, you know, that I believe is going to help take us, take us to the next level in terms of, you know, how this ESG space is evolving. Yeah. And I, I also, so, um, you know, I also heard um, or re I read somewhere about like Altria, I guess now it's Altria, Philip Morris, but basically because so many of these types of firms excluded them, obviously, from, from portfolios and screened them out. It, it made the stock, you know, obviously tremendously undervalued due, due to the lack of interest in it. And 
really boosted its future return. So people who invested in, in say, Altria over the past you know decades have done tremendously well. And some people say it's because they, you know, the, the this kind of social investing kind of created this atmosphere to provide such, you know, it was it was an unintended consequence, but a lot of people, sure. you know, talk about that. Is that is that something you ever hear? Absolutely, absolutely, and it, you know, it, it just it is what yeah. it is. If, if you're, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, if you're going to divest yourself from from something, you're going to open up an area of profit making opportunity for somebody right. else. Right. So and you just have to be okay with with somebody else, you know, making money off something that you find a test. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it is. I guess I guess it's just yeah. the way the world is. You know, it's just the way the yeah. world is. That's right. So, but, yeah, so, uh, so Joey, I, I still feel like I need a ton more education on this. Obviously, we're not going to be able to do it. Um, on this podcast, but, uh, so two questions for you, <laughs> please. Uh, one, when's the book? Um, <laughs> and, and, and then two, when I mean, you're at Ritholtz, I thought it was a requirement that you have your own podcast. I think that, isn't that a requirement when I you're at that, that company? So it's so funny. So, uh, somebody asked me about that last night and, and here's my response. Um, the work that Tony, Dina, Josh, Michael, Barry, and the rest of the team are doing is so absolutely fantastic and next level. We don't want to ruin it by having some schmuck like myself <laughs> come in <laughs> and totally disrupt what is an outstanding you know, piece of work so far. I, look, th- these guys are absolutely phenomenal. They're excellent communicators, both in writing and through podcasts. I am not yet at a place where I can compete on that level. And so it's probably better for me to be in the background where um, uh, and work with clients directly. But I appreciate the question. Being very, very humble, Joey. That's what we <laughs> love about you. Yeah. I, I got to say that you have a great voice for, yeah. for radio. Um, I... I, I I don't know. I I, I kind of think that if you if you could spend thirty minutes just each twice a month uh, recording on different topics on social uh, on sustainability, I'd love to listen to it. So if you ever change your mind, you have you'll have at least one listener. <laughs> All right, well, thank that's you. a start. My, my mother will be so proud. Thank you. <laughs> well, will your will your dad listen to it? He seems pretty cranky sometimes. Ah, uh, that guy has gone off the deep end. I, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Joey, if someone is interested in this space, but is a novice, as as many are, what resources would you say are a good place to start? Where Where's a good source of information for them to do some digging to learn more, whether on it? Yeah, you know. Let me let me give a plug to actually Dave Nadig over at ETF.com. He right now. Um, is trying to bring a a sense of clarity to the space. And he's doing a series of webinars. And he has a really good take on things, uh, you know, a a pretty modest and, and, you know, pragmatic approach to the whole ESG investing movement. So I would definitely start following some of the work that he's doing. Um, You know, John Hale over at Morningstar is absolutely terrific. They're, they're, They're constantly cranking out posts of how to approach the sustainability movement, you know, and, and then the thing is, is, you know, just to, you know, as a caveat is to be really mindful in terms of how you're going about doing it. And I'll just give you a quick example, like, you know, in our shop, because we expect turnover and 
you know, part of that reason is because, you know, the, the space is evolving as new funds come online. We want to be able to add that to the portfolio potentially. And also we want to leave ourselves an out where if it becomes a generic feature, meaning that, you know, most funds are going to incorporate some form of environmental, social and governance screening. The, there may not be a need to have an extra portfolio or an additional portfolio specifically carved out for ESG. So the way in which we've done it is that we've limited the amount of money that folks can invest in it to like 20 or 30% of their total investable assets. And we made sure to keep it in a qualified account so that if changes need to be made, it's not going to come, you know, with, with a massive tax bill. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a matter of... <sighs> trying to find the most reputable resources. Dave Diggs at Great Stars, you know, um, Morningstar's Terrific, Sustainalytics, MSCI, those are all people that are, are publishing information for free. It's accurate and it has a much more, it, it takes into account all the nuances within the space and, and presents it in a way that's pretty darn pragmatic. Great. Okay. Sounds good. Well, yeah. Joey, we've, uh, it's been great talking with you this is really interesting stuff uh we definitely i think maybe we'll have to have you on like once a year to, to give us updates on on this industry and what's going on absolutely in and uh so thank you again for coming on uh be, before we let you go though uh where can people reach you specifically i mean not phone number sure. but like how would people follow you on twitter <laughs> and uh you know uh you know find you if they want to work with you Terrific. Yeah. So um, Portland Portfolio on Twitter, uh, at Joey Fishman. We are one of the same. Um, obviously, Ritholtz's website has all of our contact information, including my own. And um, yeah, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff. I love being proved wrong. So if anybody, you know, has issues with what I said today, I'd love to hear from you. Help me change my mind. Um, anyone who's just interested in the space, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk, you know, to talk ad nauseum about it. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I, I am a golden retriever. Whoever wants to play with me, I'm, I'm happy to talk. <laughs> All right, well, that's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm coming to Portland in about a week, so uh, I may take you up on that part. Uh, All right, my man, I look forward to it. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, again, Joey, thank you so much for coming on the Planning to Teach and Retire Rich podcast. Uh, we appreciate appreciate everything that you're doing. And uh, I learned a lot. That's it for today's show. Uh, any last words, Tony and Dina? No, I thought that was great. Something, something different. Something we don't we certainly don't hear every day. So I, th I think this was really cool. We did this. Yeah, thanks, Joey. It was really a pleasure. No, thank you. We really appreciate the opportunity. All right, and with that, we are out. Alrighty.